Everyone in school memorizes the fact that Ferdinand Magellan was the first to have sailed around the world. Assuming that you've listened to the previous four episodes in this series, you now know that the only thing you previously knew about that explorer happens to have been a lie. Magellan, a Portuguese man sailing for the benefit of rival Spain, set off from the Iberian Peninsula in order to discover a quicker route to the Spice Islands, one that would hopefully reveal the island's location to be within the Spanish portion of territory identified within the terms of the Treaty of Tordesillas. Suffering from a messianic complex, Magellan allowed himself to be needlessly drawn into a local conflict and was subsequently cut to pieces by locals from what is today the Philippines, a land ironically named in honor of a Spanish king. The battle was such a rout that the surviving Spanish soldiers were unable to recover their captain's body. Ferdinand never made it to the Spice Islands, and therefore obviously never finished his journey around the world but both of those missions would be completed by others from the expedition that bore his name. History is full of these little half-truths, things we learn but never fully understand. George Washington's infamous line about never telling a lie in regards to his cherry tree chopping escapades happened to have been made up by his biographer. Likewise, students learn that the courageous words of their Prime Minister comforted the people of England during their darkest moment. Yet Winston Churchill was often too drunk when it came time to deliver his nightly address during the London Blitz. Thus, on many a night, it was a paid voice actor delivering the words that Churchill wrote to the populace that was clinging on to hope in World War II. Some of these half-truths are relatively harmless, and merely serve to enhance one's reputation. That's the case regarding Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which it's believed set all slaves free. In reality, the proclamation only set those free that were already living in territories that had already seceded from the Union. The great emancipator was an abolitionist, a person who greatly desired freedom for all, but he wasn't yet in a position to deliver it, and thus maintained active slavery in the neutral border states. Other lies and misunderstandings, however, can be incredibly hurtful and difficult to understand where they come from. In 1998, The Lancet published a study by Andrew Wakefield, which linked autism to common MMR vaccines. The study was fatally full of flaws. Psychologist Stuart Ritchie details the work that investigative journalist Brian Deere did in order to undo the work of Wakefield. The supposed study was questionable to begin with, as its author had only included a sample size of 12 children. But Wakefield went further, either misrepresenting or altering the medical details of every single one of the children in order to reach the conclusion that he wished for. Ritchie writes that Wakefield simply invented the fact that all the children showed their first autism-related symptoms soon after receiving the vaccine, whereas in reality, some had records of symptoms beforehand, others only had symptoms many months afterwards, and some never even received a diagnosis of autism at all. 
Despite these obvious shortcomings, it took 12 years to get the paper retracted. And by then, like the proverbial cat getting out of the bag, the damage was already done. Trust in vaccines plummeted, and in some locations, more than 60% of the populace stopped getting routine vaccinations for their children. As a result, long-controlled illnesses such as measles have surged back, resulting in the rise of preventable deaths across the globe. And it isn't just the anti-vaxxers that suffer, as protection depends upon herd immunity, something which is only obtained when enough of the population has been vaccinated. So why did Wakefield lie? There are two reasons. First, he was being paid by a lawyer who had plans to sue the makers of the vaccines on behalf of the parents of children with autism. Secondly, he had recently applied for a patent for his own single measles vaccine, and according to Ritchie, would have thus profited greatly had his research frightened people away from the combined MMR vaccines that were currently being used. Today, you can't explain how vaccines work without triggering an allergic I told you so from an anti-vaxxer. Vaccines simply teach our bodies how to respond to actual illness, typically by injecting a harmless weakened version of the disease in order to produce a response. The COVID pandemic showed us that individuals living in our communities were more than willing to ingest an obscure horse dewormer than to trust scientists who sought to arm us with the facts, as well as the preventative cure. Wakefield's outright lies have cost real lives. While the historical half-truths that we learn tend to be far less harmful. For instance, Columbus never discovered America, just the Caribbean, which he thought was very close to India. We all know that Paul Revere shouted that the British were coming, but in all likelihood, he said that the regulators were coming, and he did it at a low whisper. Likewise, the Wild West was of course known to have been ultra-violent, yet the infamous shootout at the OK Corral only claimed three lives. That low number still represented a tragedy, as western towns in that era experienced on average 1.5 gun-related deaths per year, making the OK Corral the equivalent of two years' worth of violence over the course of one day. In 2021, Memphis, Tennessee came in first for gun-related deaths in the U.S., with 312 deaths attributed to criminal homicides. The metropolis of Boston only had 25, still far higher than the lawless Wild West. This information is readily collected and published about America's cities. However, the numbers don't factor in suicides which involve guns. NBC News reveals that two decades' worth of data from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention reveal that from 2011 to 2020, the most rural counties in the U.S. had a 37% higher rate of gun deaths per capita than the most urban counties. This is attributed to a rise in gun suicides, which outnumbered gun homicides in 2021 by more than 5,300 and are more likely to occur in rural communities. Unfortunately, these facts don't get in the way of most people's feelings, as 77% of Americans who live in rural areas say that they would feel unsafe living in a large city. 
In the summer of 2023, the state of Florida decided to promote another harmful half-truth, altering their social studies curriculum to include the teaching that the institution of slavery taught, quote, valuable skills to those who were caught up in the evil practice. Governor Ron DeSantis defended the new law by using the example of a slave learning the trade of blacksmithing in order to live a productive life after he was free. That statement, of course, is an outrageous half-truth. Yes, those who were enslaved learned skills. They weren't necessarily skills that they wanted to learn, but through work you always learn something. Unfortunately, the only people that gained value from these skills were the owners and consumers of the products that were manufactured by slave labor. That's because on average, slaves only lived for seven years. They weren't growing old and earning their freedom, as the American slave trade was an unappealable death sentence to those who were caught up in it. Even after freedom had been obtained through violent civil war, Freedmen were unable to break away from the South due to a complete lack of accumulated skills. Governments, financial institutions, and Southern society as a whole conspired against them through a series of laws nicknamed Jim Crow in order to ensure that the formerly enslaved remained their servants. Thus, for decades after obtaining freedom, the lives of African Americans hardly changed at all. So where does the half-truth of Ferdinand Magellan sailing around the world fit on the spectrum of hurtful half-lies? Certainly closer to Washington never telling a lie than to Wakefield's autism study or Florida's history curriculum. Unless, of course, you happen to be related to Juan Sebastian Elcano, the man who finished Magellan's voyage, a man whom you've likely never heard of. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the adventure of the explorer Ferdinand Magellan. Episode number five, the one about Sebastian Elcano. Pigafetta, a participant in Magellan's last battle and the designated historian on the voyage, eulogized the captain, writing that I hope that the fame of so noble a captain will not become effaced in our times. Among the other virtues that he possessed, he was more constant than anyone else in the greatest adversity. He endured hunger better than all of the others, and more accurately than any man in the world did he understand sea charts and navigation and that his was the truth was seen openly, for no other had had so much natural talent nor the boldness to learn how to circumnavigate the world as he had almost done. Pigafetta continues, That battle was fought on Saturday, April 27, 1521. The Captain General died on a Saturday because it was the day most holy to him. Eight of our men were killed with him, and four Indians who had become Christians— and who had come afterwards to aid us were killed by the mortars of the boats. Of the enemy, only fifteen were killed, while many of us were wounded. The rest of the crew didn't necessarily feel the same way about their deceased leader, 
Before the battle had begun, they had unanimously objected to being inserted into a local conflict that had little to nothing to do with their mission to discover a route to the Spice Islands. Historian Lawrence Burgreen reveals that Magellan's death may also have been the result of one final mutiny by his own disenchanted soldiers. Although Pigafetta and other eyewitnesses provide a detailed account of the Captain General's actions during the fight in Mactan Harbor, the whereabouts and actions of his backup is open to question and to suspicion. During his amphibious landing, Magellan and his assault team expected the gunners aboard his ships to cover them with fire that would disperse the island warriors arrayed against them. Pigafetta, a gentleman, not a soldier nor a seaman, believed the tide made it impossible for their ships to anchor close enough to the raging battle for their artillery to be effective. But even after several hours of sustained fighting, the crew failed to dispatch reinforcements in their longboats. The historian emphasizes his point that the Sabaeans eventually intervened, but not Magellan's own men, a circumstance that makes no sense unless the crew members refused to come to the Captain General's aid or their officers ordered them to stay put. The allegation here was that their failure to act was a mutiny that was easy to disguise. If Magellan won, they could say that there had been no need to help. If he lost then they could move on without him. In his absence, the survivors of the Armada of the Malukas held a democratic election to determine their next admiral. Bergering tells us that above all, they sought a man who would avoid high-risk endeavors, similar to those that had endangered and claimed the lives of so many. They had one focus getting home alive with riches derived from the accumulation of spices. The vote resulted in a tie between Duarte Barbosa, Magellan's brother-in-law, and Juan Serrano, a Castilian captain. Thus, the Armada was once again placed beneath the dual leadership. Two men vocally disagreed with the result of the vote. Enrique, Magellan's slave from the Philippines, argued that Ferdinand's death entitled him to freedom and a vote. There was enough confusion that it was granted, and the former slave who had sailed around the world to return home immediately abandoned ship and set off for the Christianized leaders of Cebu. The second objection came from Juan Sebastian Elcano, a Spanish seaman who had played a leading role in one of the prior mutinies against Magellan. He argued that Serrano was incompetent to do anything but pilot the ship. Of course, Elcano happened to be from the Basque province of Spain, a portion of the kingdom that was particularly hostile to Castile. Of the two, Enrique's objection was far more important, for he had decided to extract revenge from his captors. As the only member of the Armada who could speak the local language, he managed to convince the leader of Cebu that the Spaniards were seeking to betray him and that the best course of action was to turn the tables by striking first. Licking their wounds, the Armada of the Malucas decided to regroup upon the allied island of Cebu. They arrived on May 1st to a feast that had been prepared in their honor. Thirty men, most of them officers, decided to go ashore in order to celebrate the resumption of their mission. Pigafetta was not among those in attendance, 
as one of his wounds had swollen his forehead to what is described as embarrassing portions. He narrowly escaped a massacre. Sailor Jeans de Mafra was one of the few that had gone ashore and survived the trap. He described the chaos which he experienced firsthand by writing that, as the banquet was about to end, some armed people emerged from the palm grove and attacked the invitees, killing 27 of them and capturing the priest who had remained there and Juan Serrano, the pilot, who was an old man. Others, although there were few of them, swam to the ships and, helped by those aboard, cut the cables and set sail. The barbarians, gorging on the killing and anxious to steal whatever was in the ships, brought their armada to the sea, and in order to stop our men while they were preparing to leave, also brought Juan Serrano to the shore and said that they wanted to exchange him for ransom. The old man implored our men with words and tears to feel sympathy for his old age and not to become accomplices, lest his last days end in the hands of such cruel barbarians, but to strive so that at least he could spend what little life he had left amongst his kin. Our men told him that they would do as they could. The ransom was discussed and they asked for an iron gun, which is what they fear the most. This was sent to them on a skiff, and upon seeing it, the Indians asked for more. And no sooner would our men grant their request than the Indians would reply, asking for more. And this continued until realizing their intention, those aboard the ships did not want to remain there any longer, and said to Juan Serrano that he himself could very well see what was going on, and how the Indians' words were all but a pretense. Thus, the newly minted co-captain of the Armada was left to his grisly fate when the three remaining Spanish ships raised anchor and left the harbor with all the speed they could muster. Again, the crew had failed to risk sending a rescue party to either stop the massacre or recover the lost bodies of their crewmen. By best estimate, only 115 men of the original 260 who had left Spain remained alive. Duarte Barbosa was also among those killed during the May 1st massacre. Thus, the second leaders of the voyage were in charge for a mere three days. The crew didn't know it at the time, but five days later, on May 6, 1521, the San Antonio, the ship that had fled in the night while the rest of the Armada navigated the Strait of Magellan through South America, had arrived home to Seville, Spain. Those mutineers would tell lavish tales of the cruelty of their crazed Captain Ferdinand Magellan. Thus, his reputation only survived a month longer than he had. The survivors had no way of knowing any of this, as they remained 10,000 miles from home. Hopelessly shorthanded, they set fire to the Concepcion. Bergreen writes that a hasty vote among the sailors placed Espinoza in command of Victoria, while João López Carvalho, the Portuguese pilot, won election as the new captain general. Elcano, the master of Victoria, silently cursed the new captain general, who might be a talented pilot, but was incapable of imposing discipline on the unruly fleet. The new leadership barely interacted with islanders that they sailed quickly past. 
merely stopping long enough to occasionally ask for directions to the Spice Islands, a task made all the more difficult by the defection of Enrique, who had served so effectively as a communicator with the residents of the Philippines. What follows is an Odysseus-like tale of aimless wandering. They found an island of dark-skinned pygmies, and another that was said to be full of waterfalls and gold, and still another that was home to naked predatory hunters referred to as Moors who had been banished from Borneo for prior unspeakable acts of violence. The Europeans finally found food and supplies in the South China Sea, hopelessly off course from their objective of the Spice Islands. They repaid the generosity of their hosts by kidnapping three local pilots, all Arabs, whom they threatened to torture if they didn't take them to the Spice Islands. The experienced pilots quickly took over the navigation, leading them directly towards Brunei, an Arab stronghold in the exact opposite direction of where they hoped to go. The subterfuge managed to work in their favor, however, as their vessels were mistaken for Portuguese ships which regularly traveled to the Spice Islands and beyond via their established route around the southern tip of Africa. The fleet rested for six peaceful days, discovering an elaborate city entirely built on salt water and containing 25,000 fires. Gunpowder weapons and cannons adorned the walls as Burgreen reveals that the Armada had finally reached a civilization at least as advanced as their own. This introduced a new fear for the distraught crew. If the Portuguese were to find them, they would surely be sunk on sight. Likewise, if they came upon an Arab or Chinese vessel, if either civilization sought to maintain the mysterious location of the Spice Islands for their own benefit. Still, the Armada of the Moluccas was hopelessly lost and therefore forced to rely upon the goodwill of others in order to harvest enough supplies to continue limping towards their goal. It was here that they met a Muslim king named Raj Surapada. The crew rode elephants, dined on 32 different kinds of meat, and saw locals wearing eyeglasses, despite the fact that Venice believed it was the only kingdom to possess the knowledge for how to grind glass. After one particular feast, it was noticed that a number of guests had gone missing, including Elcano and Espinosa, the leaders of the Victoria. The next day, 100 small canoes sailed out to the remaining ships of the Armada and engaged them in direct conflict. After firing up their advanced guns and incapacitating the lead vessel, Caraljo boarded it and bribed the attack leader into a truce. With the gunpowder clearing, the opposing king claimed it had all been a case of mistaken identity, and soon released both Elcano and Espinosa, who had been held against their will for safekeeping. Caravajo wasn't willing to believe the story, however, and kept 16 prisoners aboard his vessel. Worse for them and himself, he decided to keep three beautiful women aboard as punishment for the king's actions against them. As you might imagine, the sailors were quite happy regarding the new leadership's reversal of Magellan's previous no-women-on-the-ship rule. While their assumption was that all men would disgustingly have access to the captives, Caravajo claimed to the men that he intended to keep them, quote, 
appear for King Charles himself. You can imagine the rage that was leveled against him when it became known that he was using all three women as his personal harem. When that detail emerged, he was forced to give away nearly all of his own personal stake of the loot in order to keep his head. Ergreen notes that Caravajo's unscrupulous behavior made Pigafetta long for Magellan's icy sense of duty and discipline. Without those driving forces, the expedition's sense of moral imperative melted away amid the luxuriance Indonesian heat. Two months later, Caravajo was forced to step down from leadership in order to resume his former post as pilot. Bergerine reveals that the officers settled on an awkward triumvirate to command the fleet. The purser, Martin Mendez, became the fifth captain general, and Gonzalo Gomez de Espinosa took over as captain of the Trinidad, still the flagship. Elcano gnashed his teeth in frustration, having been bypassed yet again in favor of men with lesser skills but greater rank. No one could forget that he had participated in the mutiny against Magellan, and served his time in chains. Still, he was promoted by default to the captain of Victoria, and since neither the purser nor Espinosa had any first-hand navigational experience, Elcano served as the unofficial head of the expedition. In his entire chronicle of the voyage, Pigafetta did not mention even once the name of the man who now led the armada. They had allowed God to lead them, tried wandering aimlessly, before then abducting innocent civilians in order to take them where they wished to go. Thirty-five days after arriving in Brunei, they figured out that they could sail along the shoreline in order to recreate the path of an earlier European traveler to the Spice Islands, Ludovico di Vathema of Bologna. Of course, traveling in uncharted waters near land held its own risk, as the Trinidad ran aground attempting to round a point. While the shoal should have sliced the hole open, a high tide managed to free it. Somehow, their luck was still with them, as shortly after the incident, a sailor had accidentally lit the fuse to a barrel full of gunpowder, barely managing to snuff it out before the barrel exploded. They were forced to land on the island of Sinbonbon, which amazingly is neither a spice island nor the home to the mythical inventors of the delicious Cinnabon. There, they attempted their badly needed repairs to their two remaining ships. The island's name wasn't a complete misnomer, as Sinbonbon was nearby two islands which were known to produce the finest cinnamon grown anywhere in the world. In the 16th century, only cloves were more valuable than cinnamon. The crew traded for 17 pounds of the spice, which was said to have been worth enough on the docks of Seville to buy an entire ship. They could have stayed longer, but a favorable wind got them sailing once again towards their destination, which was finally within reach. They came upon and subsequently attacked a canoe, leaving only one survivor who claimed to be willing to take them to the Malaccas. Elcano next sailed them past a cape inhabited by cannibals, whom Pigafetta described as shaggy men who are exceedingly great fighters and archers. They use swords one palm in length 
and eat only raw human hearts with the juices of oranges and lemons. They reached their long-sought-after destination on November 6, 1521, four days too late for Pedro Sanchez, who had a weapon backfire on him during testing, and two days too late for Juan Batista, who died in a gunpowder explosion. Although there were more than 1,000 spice islands in the region, the Europeans knew of just five of them. These islands consisted of volcanic ash, which enriched the soil. Along with their naturally moist climate, the region's environment provided a unique source for the growth of spices. It had only taken 27 months to sail what Magellan had claimed would be a shortcut to the profitable region. The Portuguese route typically only took 10 to 11 months. They met a leader named Almanzor, who happened to need the Spaniards about as much as they needed him. He claimed to be familiar with King Charles through his prior dealings with the Portuguese. A decade earlier, Spain's rivals had set up a trading station with Almanzor's father, who had sought to introduce a bidding war with the Arab merchants who already maintained a stranglehold on the island's crops. It turned out that the island's inhabitants knew their value and resented outsiders who sought to take advantage of them with mere trinkets. Yao de Barros, a Portuguese court historian, reveals how the Portuguese privately spoke about the inhabitants, detailing that, in everything but war they are slothful, and if there be any industry among them in agriculture or trade, it is confined to the women. Altogether they are a levitious people, false and ungrateful, but experts in learning anything. Although poor in wealth, such is their pride and presumption that they will abate nothing from necessity, nor will they submit except to the sword that cuts them. Finally, these islands, according to the account given by our people, are a warren of every evil and contain nothing good but their clove tree. Though a creation of God, the spice was actually an apple of discord, and responsible for more afflictions than gold. The newly arrived Spaniards offered another chance to alter the established balance of power in the region, with Almanzor hoping to ride the power of Spain to the top of the Spice Island food chain. Additionally, he represented a potential claim of dominion over the islands, since, to their dismay, the officers of the Armada realized that this island was fully entrenched on the wrong side of the Treaty of Tordesillas. Only by getting the island's king to sign a Treaty of Dominion would Spain be allowed to travel freely back to the Spice Islands. Almanzor immediately proved that he wasn't to be trusted, lying to them about the fate of Francisco Sarajo a man who had written the letters which inspired Magellan's voyage to the Spice Islands. Supposedly, the Portuguese explorer had remained behind in order to set up relations with the locals, except the residents now claimed to have never heard of him. Turns out that he, like Magellan, had gotten caught up in a power struggle between two island nations. Sarajo claimed control of one of the force's navies, which he led to victory. Upon his success, he had forced Almanzor to marry off his daughter to his enemy, for which the king later had Sarajo poisoned to death.
but the fleet of the Moloccos didn't know any of this, and felt that they had a good ally on their side as he began loading up their ship with spices just four days after they had dropped anchor. Pigafetta writes that we immediately began to trade in the following manner. For ten brazas of red cloth of very good quality, they gave us a little over 400 pounds of cloves. Thirty-five glass drinking cups brought in another hundred pounds. Fifty pairs of scissors resulted in another hundred pounds, as did forty pairs of hats. From there, the men of the Armada traded the gongs, the knives, and other items pirated from the Chinese junks they had raided and root for the cloves. In return for these trinkets, they received a haul that a sailor might expect to see once or twice in a lifetime. The final tally amounted to 50 tons of the fragrant gold. Things began to turn against them on November 13th, when Pedro Alfonso de la Rosa, a companion of the deceased Francisco Serrajo, arrived on the scene and hailed the fleet from the competing island of Ternate. The Portuguese man informed them that they had spent the past 10 years in the Moluccas, and the 16 years prior to that in India. After becoming quite drunk, he warned the crew that a Portuguese ship had left 15 days prior with their cargo hold full of cloves. None of that was all that surprising, but the unique aspect that came along with the company of De La Rosa was the revelation that the Caraval had been specifically inquiring about the Armada of the Moluccas. He also revealed what to Burgreen was a bombshell, specifically that the King of Portugal had already secretly enjoyed privileged access to the Moluccas for 10 years and that it was his preference that the king of Spain should not know. The historian notes that this piece of information explained why King Manuel had refused Magellan four times. A water route such as Magellan proposed, no matter how daring, threatened to disturb Portugal's lucrative but clandestine trade in spices. If only Magellan had been alive to find out that his expulsion from his homeland came about not because he had been deemed crazy, but because the king feared that he might have been right. Wary of getting involved in local politics, the exhausted crew nevertheless remained in the Moluccas for the next month. When they departed, they were so laden down with spices that the Trinidad, the flagship of the Armada, began taking on water. It was at this exact moment that King Almanzor proved his value to the alliance that he desperately sought. Sending out men to find the leak while the crew worked the pumps furiously to keep the vessel afloat. The loss of the ship wouldn't have just been an economic disaster, but a humanitarian one as well, as the Victoria didn't have enough space to absorb the remaining crew. As you might imagine, fixing a ship of such size isn't an easy task. Confident that they could be done, the two ships decided to split up with Elcano, the captain of the Victoria, agreeing to set sail while the winds were favorable, taking the most direct route back to Spain. This would necessitate crossing large swaths of Portuguese hemisphere, and likely meant that those who remained trapped behind on the Trinidad counted their blessings. That ship would avoid the popular routes favored by the Portuguese by sailing east, 
back across the Pacific in order to transfer its goods to another Spanish ship somewhere along the Panamanian coast. The crews drew lots or individually decided which vessel to trust their fate to. Pigafetta notes that the lack of food within the holes made many weary of joining the Victoria. Which would you choose? Direct but risky? Or slow and safe? As it turns out, those that joined Elcano on the direct route lived, while the Trinidad was subsequently discovered by the Portuguese. Its crew was taken captive, and the ship, along with its precious cargo, was destroyed, never to be heard from again. As you likely have guessed, Pigafata chose correctly, as did 60 of the crew along with their 16 indigenous captives. Elcano, a captain in name, set sail for the Cape of Good Hope on December 21st, 1521, almost a full year since the Armada had been expected back in Spain. They could have deserted a dozen times, selling their haul to middlemen along the way, but they feared the unknown of the lands that they sailed amongst, particularly having known that some islands contained cannibals. Two days after Christmas, they took on an Indonesian pilot who helped them to successfully avoid pirates within the Alor Strait. The fact that the ship was alone made it particularly vulnerable. In January, a squall almost ended the voyage, causing extensive damage that needed repairs. On the island of Timor, they took a chief and his son hostage in order to acquire six buffalo, as well as a dozen goats and pigs. With their bellies finally full, they headed to Java. It wasn't known to the Europeans yet, but the island was home to an excellent cup of coffee. The distinction between Java and the word coffee is merely from whom colonized the territory. The Dutch brought the beverage to Europe's shores from the Middle East, utilizing a spelling close to the Ottoman Turks, coffee with a K. Then a hundred years later, having colonized Java, they rediscovered the drink, this time with a bean that had a different taste. They named it after where they found it and produced Java as a competitor to coffee, whose trade had come to be dominated by their competitors. The crew would have wanted a few caffeinated beverages as they rounded the Cape of Good Hope, which originally bore the name the Cape of Storms, courtesy of Bartholomew Diaz, the first Portuguese explorer to successfully round the southern tip of Africa. Bergerine writes that while it had been crossed many times before, it was still considered extremely hazardous and barely navigable even by the most seaworthy of ships and the most experienced of captains. Neither description fits Elcano's Victoria. Pigafetta pointed out that a number of the crew pondered jumping ship at Madagascar, despite the fact that the island was a Portuguese stronghold and the sudden appearance of a Spanish sailor from a highly illegal expedition would be more than enough justification to hand out a life sentence of hard labor. For weeks, Elcano attempted to pilot through the Cape of Good Hope. With no success, he risked landing at a port in South Africa, but found no one willing or able to help them bypass the tricky navigation. 
He was fortunate in that the Cape is a veritable graveyard of seafaring vessels, home to at least 3,000 shipwrecks. Burgreen teaches that the Algul's current tracks from the northeast to southwest, following the contour of the continental shelf, often at speeds of up to six knots. The ship also had to battle giant waves and gales that can change from northeasterly to southwesterly in a matter of minutes. The wind was an even more dangerous force than the current. The major wind belts around southern Africa are influenced by two high-pressure systems, the South Atlantic High and the Indian Ocean High. The Coriolis effect deflects these winds to the left in the southern hemisphere and they blow around in a counterclockwise direction. Such systems are also known as anti-cyclones, during which winds can reach up to 100 miles per hour, along with 60-foot-high monstrous walls of rogue wave day and night. Mercifully, the ship managed to pass through the gauntlet successfully on May 22, 1522. They crossed the equator on June 8th and sailed northwest for two months without having taken on any food since the buffalo. The crew was literally starving to death and a fresh bout of scurvy had broken out amongst the long-suffering crew, 21 of which succumbed to the disease. On July 9th, they reached the Cape Verde Islands, the marker for the line of demarcation between Portugal and Spain's holdings according to the treaty. At this point, Elcano knew a few things. First, his men had no chance of defending themselves against any threat if one were to emerge. Secondly, his cargo hold was filled to the brim with unlimited riches that had been illegally obtained due to the fact that Portugal was fully cognizant of the fact that the Spice Islands were well within their legal land holdings. Thus, Elcano lied to get past the Portuguese blockade. He lied about what was in his hold, where he had gone, who the ship's original captain was, what had happened to him, as well as the route that he had taken. Interestingly enough, they discovered from their rivals that it was Thursday, and not the Wednesday that had been a part of their official logs. Without anyone having ever circumnavigated the globe, no one knew that they would have to adjust their clocks by 24 hours. The revelation horrified the Catholics amongst them, for it meant that they had regularly eaten meat on Friday. Not wanting to cause an international incident, the Portuguese allowed the ship to pass through unabated. After all, the ragged crew of 22 half-living men couldn't be a threat to the largest maritime empire at the time. Pigafetta goes silent for the remainder of the journey, suggesting that the end of the road was full of continuous suffering. There are even hints that Elcano may have faced a mutiny in the last days of his command. They miraculously pulled into port on September 6, 1522, with just 18 living crewmen. They had been at sea for more than three years and covered 15 times the distance traversed by Columbus's first voyage to the New World. Miraculously, this one ship's cargo hold of cloves was enough to make the entire mission a financial success. Burgreen notes that the king's agents were pleased to note that the cloves were of first quality, far exceeding those obtained from merchants who had acquired them in the traditional manner, 
from middlemen using land routes. Elcano's first stop was to a church. We don't know if he was giving thanks for his survival or asking for forgiveness for his actions while in survival mode. He then sat down to write a letter to the king, boasting of the voyage's accomplishments, while also simultaneously justifying his assumption of command after Magellan's death. King Charles, to whom Ferdinand had been so dedicated, didn't seem to mourn the loss of the Armada's original leader. But when rumors came up that Magellan may have been killed by his own crew, the king set up a commission to discover the truth. In this age of Spain's history, such an inquiry often involved a couple of torture devices. Facing a series of 13 questions, Elcano and the survivors threw Magellan under the proverbial bus, noting each time that their captain general had defied the king's orders. Elcano's account was accepted as truth, and the Spaniard received an annual pension of 500 ducats, a knighthood, and a coat of arms befitting the mariner who had sailed around the world. The crest depicted a castle, spices, two Malay kings, a globe, and the statement, Thou first circled me. Now rich beyond belief, he immediately took on two mistresses, fathering children with each, while simultaneously managing to invite neither to live in his luxurious new estate. Victoria's survivors validated the story which had been told by the crew of the San Antonio, which was finally let out of prison for their prior abandonment of Magellan. So why do we know Magellan is the man who sailed around the globe and not Elcano? Antonio Pigafetta, who remained a staunch Magellan loyalist, had the final say. His book began the most significant work of first-hand travel history since the publication of Marco Polo's The Travels. With their own maps now in hand, the kings of Portugal and Spain arranged a meeting to renegotiate the Treaty of Tordesillas. Burgreen tells us that the deliberations were a farce from the beginning. Held along the two nations' border, the Portuguese delegation were stopped along a bridge by a small boy, who asked if they were carving up the world with King Charles. The former governor of India, Diogo Lopez de Sequeira, acknowledged that indeed they were. At that, the boy lifted his shirt, turned to reveal his bare bottom, and with his small finger traced the line between his buttocks. Draw your line right through this place, he declared. Both kings ended up claiming the islands, each producing maps that showed their location residing within the portion of the territory. Only their supposed alliance with Almanzor allowed the Spaniards the ability to traverse through the Portuguese regional claims in Asia. King Charles sent countless follow-up expeditions across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans in an attempt to break Portugal's stranglehold of the spice trade. Elcano was selected as a pilot on the second armada of the Moluccos, but committed a number of errors in the early going that the steady hand of Ferdinand Magellan had prevented. When his captain died of scurvy, Elcano found himself once again elevated to the leader of the expedition, but this time luck wasn't on his side, 
and five days after drawing up his final will and testament, he also succumbed to scurvy. Of the 450 men on the second voyage, only eight returned. Another profitable voyage, considering that the ship's hull was once again full of cloves. The third voyage turned back at the Strait of Magellan, and the fourth, led by Hernan Cortes, was captured by the Portuguese. King Charles was too broke to authorize the fifth mission. Horrifically, he was forced to borrow money from Portugal. As a condition of the loan, Charles signed the Treaty of Saragossa, granting the Spice Islands once and for all to Portugal. Ultimately, Ferdinand Magellan had been proven somewhat right in his attempt to validate his theory about the world being significantly smaller than previous estimated. It turns out his voyage proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was in fact substantially larger than anyone had ever believed possible. Without any surviving benefactors, his role in the larger-than-life voyage simply became a tagline, both good for understanding a simple fact regarding who led the expedition that circumnavigated the globe, and a memorable name to rhyme things with for a Dr. Scholl's commercial. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.